Go ahead, Ray. You! You worthless pieces of slime! You ignorant, disgusting clown! Nothing but an unstable short chain molecule! It's the stuff. It's like pure concentrated evil. And it's all flowing right to this spot. Material devolution has begun. We are back at it again, ladies and gentlemen. We're in San Diego. It may not be sunny, but we're looking forward to another fun show. How are you doing today, Mr. Walter? I'm doing really good. Had an excellent week this week, Devin. I think we got an exciting topic, uh, something that I think is rapidly changing. Yeah, we always have talked about this topic for a while, but it's, of course, been in the news recently, which is why we're going to talk about it. So uh, let's jump right into it, my friend. You, I'm sure you've seen the video. Uh, as well as I did earlier this week, where Obama gave, I think it was like a six or a seven minute speech uh, in front of the White House press junket about prison reform and just issues that we're having with the modern prison system that you may have a debt to society to pay for a nonviolent drug offense, but it shouldn't be 20 years. It shouldn't be life to pay that debt. And also, interestingly enough, Obama recently visited a federal penitentiary. It's going to be on an episode of Vice coming up. And he's the first sitting president to ever visit a federal penitentiary, which is mind-boggling. Yep. You know, you'd think that when 5% of your population is in jail. <laughs> Actually, it's 1%. Yeah. What, what, 1%. What, what, whatever. 2.3 million people. It's a lot. Yeah, when, when it's like millions of people are in jail. This is something worth looking into. So uh, we just want to talk about this topic today of prison reform, the prison industry complex, and just all these issues that... Prisons are presented in America. It just seems so synonymous, the prison and the American judicial system. So, Matt, I know you had some uh, some facts that you wanted to bring up to kick off the discussion. So why don't you, you throw us in the mix? Yeah, so um, I'll just throw out some facts here and kind of like, you know, bang some things, uh, some things out. July 16th, El Reno Federal Prison in Oklahoma. That's where Obama was um, on July 16th. Uh, we already touched on it, 1%. Of the population in the United States is incarcerated, 2.3 million people. That's up literally 500% over the last 40 years, <laughs> which is incredible. It's that in itself. I mean, unbelievable. Um, one in 31 adults in prison, jail, parole, or on probation. So somewhere in the correction system, there's one in 31 adults in the United States. Uh, so those are kind of the stats and, and kind of the astronomical numbers that we're talking about. And of course, when you get this type of attention and, 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 a, and a captive uh, customer, so to speak, there's always money involved, right? And so what is the apparatus behind this mass incarceration what 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 goes on behind the scenes that people don't know about you know this this for-profit prison system it's very comparative because i think we're actually messed up the five percent statistic was it was that uh, america's population is five percent of the world's population but we have 25 percent of the world's prisoners right that that was the statistic i was looking for mm -hmm. so you're like oh wow they're like you know basically incarcerating people at five times the rate of the rest of the world why is that? I mean, what makes America so different than the rest of the world that needs to be incarcerating so many people? Because when you look at it from like a socioeconomic standpoint, you know, we always like to say, you know, America's number one. America's not number one. Not in social freedom. We are in this. Not, yeah, in this we are. <laughs> Very ironic. <laughs> we are winning this race. We are winning the prison population race, but not in economic, not in you know, economic prosperity, not in social freedoms. We're not the worst, that's for sure. We're in like the top 20, but we're not the best. We're not even in the top 10. But we're not the worst. So it's like, okay, why should we be having the most crime and having to incarcerate the most people? It is very little to do when you dive into the system to do with actual need to institute some type of criminal reform strategy whereby incarcerating the population, you're decreasing the crime rate. They've actually found that the violent crime drop we've seen over the last 30 years, there's been a huge drop in violent crime, and it's actually coincided with an increase in the prison population, which doesn't make any sense. It's like if the main thing you should be incarcerating people for is going down drastically, then why are the number of people being incarcerated going, going up. up drastically? Yeah. And of course, we find out everything's connected in this country. The drug war is the main you know, feeder system 
Right. 50% of the uh, federal um, prison population is uh, drug offenses. Yeah, I read that there are now 11 times as many people in jail for drug convictions than there were in 1980. So 35 years ago, were 1,100% more people in jail for that specific, you know, well, crime. Well, in, in 1980, there was only 320,000 people in prison. Man, that's crazy too. I mean, this built, there's so much profit involved. I don't think people really understand when we say prison industry complex, we're talking about an apparatus that involves so many players. It's very, very difficult to even comprehend. There's the people getting the contracts to build the prisons. There's the unions, the prison guard union, the judicial uh, body union. The commissary company. The commissary company. There's so many levels to this that it's very, very easy to get caught up because it, it is a system and once people decide that this is what we have in place this is how we're gonna you know use our criminal justice system the very next step is well how can we profit off of it like, this is America so there's got to be a way where you know we can, we can make 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 a cut off this and uh, the story I wanted to bring up was an interesting one I came across it was uh, so what's the tie-in is it states are states doing 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 the deals with the with the for-profit prison companies? Because if so, I mean that would make sense because fifty-seven percent of the people incarcerated violated a state law and are in state prisons. So fifty-seven percent of that two point three million are all in state prisons, and thirty percent are in local jails. And federal prisons only make up ten percent of the overall population, which is interesting in itself. I mean it. it you, you always talk and you hear like federal penitentiary, right? And you think of everybody being in, in, in federal prison, mm -hmm. you know, for these for these crimes. But in federal prisons, only seven percent of the uh, of the people incarcerated in federal prisons are violent criminals, and fifty percent are drug offenses. You so know, the lowest part, the federal prisons make up ten percent of the entire prison population, but yet fifty percent of that is full with drug offenses. The states are complicit. I mean, the federal government's complicit. They're complicit on all levels. The states have the best way to make money off of it because, like you said, their apparatus is larger. They're housing more people. So the story I wanted to talk about was just, you know, we, we know some of the bigger ways people are making money, but there's some even more insidious ways that corporations have figured out how to force themselves into this game and to make a profit. So uh, it was an article by Time by Daniel Wagner called Meet the Prison Bankers for Profit from the Inmates. And it's a story about this company called JPay Inc., who basically has taken over as processing payments for different state-run correctional facilities. You used to send your son or your cousin or your friend a money order. And all it cost you was a stamp and the cost well, of giving the money order was $2. So they changed it and they said, well, now this company is handling all the payments. You can send them the money order now, instead of taking two to three days, it takes over a month for this company to process a money order. Or you can use their electronic easy pay debit card, for which they only charge you a nominal fee of 15 to 35 percent of what? what you're depositing. <laughs> In some places, it's a flat fee of seven dollars. In other places, other states, it's as high as 35 percent. And of course, guess where a portion of that fee goes? To the state which is how they got the states to agree to these payment systems. Hey, we'll take over all your payment apparatuses, your costs are reduced to nothing, and we'll give you a cut on top of what we're gouging out of the prisoners. Who's going to complain except the prisoners and their families? Damn. So, so dirty, my friend. So, you know, I read about this and I couldn't believe it. You know, like, literally what we're doing is we're passing the cost of prison on from the state to the prison's fam prisoners' families. Because in prison, people don't know, a lot of times you pay for everything yourself, from toilet paper to doctor's visits. People just assume, like, oh, the state pays for No, you actually pay for your own stuff. You work for anywhere from 12 to 50 cents an hour. Yeah. Yeah. You know, doing things like uh, making license plates, putting together protector boards. I mean, this is a whole other area, the private, private industry. I even heard, and I'm not even, I, I'm not sure, I'm not 100% sure, so don't take me at my word, but I heard that they even like made like underwear and bras for companies like Victoria's Secret and things like that for, for low, low, low wages, way under what minimum wage is, like something like three bucks an hour or something like that, and they were making clothes for a company. If that's true, then it just, just completely blows my mind. How, how that can be legal in any circumstance. 
Yeah, well, what they've been paying them, it's it's far. So does the state get the other part, and then they go, oh, yeah, well, you know, they're actually getting paid minimum wage, but we have to take it from them because, you know, they're in prison. You know, I don't know what the other system is. It's always this great American system of, hey, let's get a middleman in place, and then the middleman will give us a cut. So the middleman gets a cut for being the middleman, and we get a kickback cut for putting the middleman in place right. to get the cut. It's a cut on top of a cut. Classic American pyramid scheme. <laughs> and yes, there are tons of uh, tons of major corporations involved in working with the state to use them for uh, you know prison industry goods. Uh, I think I've read that. Let me pull the stats here. So they supply ninety eight percent of the entire market for equipment assembly services, ninety three percent of paints and paintbrushes. I'm sure that's fun to work around and good for your health. Ninety two percent of stove assembly. 46% of body armor, 36% of home appliances, 30% of headphones, microphones, speakers, 21% of office furniture, and actually 100% of all military helmets, ID tags, bulletproof vests, and canteens, those are created in federal prison systems through prison labor. So, I mean, if you're paying somebody a dollar an hour to build this for you, it's clear that you know this is a very well-tapped pool of inexpensive exploitive labor that the military-industrial complex needs to support itself because it knows it can get these goods at such a cheap cost based on the contract it's giving to the state to create this for them. So, right. So it's a very incestuous relationship where one bureaucracy is working with another to support itself with this exploited labor. Crazy. Crazy. So I, I was amazed to see this just because, you know... So how much are the prisoners getting paid in, in this whole scheme? You were saying it's like 50 cents to a dollar. Oh, who else is getting, it's is getting it's, money? So these companies come in and well, they make a deal with the state here's how it works. the prison system? So there's multiple ways. So maybe let's say that the prisoner's making 12 to 50 cents an hour. Yeah. Yeah. So what the state makes money on is, well, first I'll make money on the company they give the contract to. Right. So they're making money. Hey, you know, Victoria's Secret, we're going to have our guys put together your laundry for you. This is the cost it's going to be. You supply the garments, this, that. This is our fee for putting this together. Thank you very much. How are we going to make money on top of that? Okay, well, whatever we pay out, the 50 cents an hour, let's say at most, to the inmate, well, the inmate's going to spend that money. He's going to spend well, it. Well, yeah, and he has to spend it here. He's got to use his JPay and debit card to buy his MP3s. Yeah. And guess what? Price of buying an MP3 is 50% higher than it is on iTunes yep. for JPaying. You want to buy this roll of to toilet paper? Well, we stock it and buy it on ourselves. And we're, we're, we're giving you a cut on that. If JPay Inc. isn't giving us a cut, we're doing it ourselves and we're taking our uncut out. No money ever changes hands without the state taking a little cut. It's classic like mafioso business tactics. Whenever money changes hands, there's a percentage to be paid. Mm -hmm. It never. There's no free exchange of anything right. in the prison system. And I found it very strange when I was reading about the story. The prison labor industry actually has its roots in slavery, which is something I didn't know but makes perfect sense. So apparently after the, uh, the Civil War, they created this system of hiring out prisoners. And it was basically a way to continue the tradition of slavery without having slaves. So they would hire them on pennies on a dollar. Well, here's what would happen. So uh, freed slaves, traditionally back in the day, a lot of them would work in a system where it was basically considered a sharecropper's agreement. You'd live on the land of the landowner and work on the crops in exchange for a percentage of them or whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of freed slaves, they were being charged with not carrying out their sharecropping commitments. So, you know, they weren't doing their part or they were charged with petty thievery. So these are almost like unprovable things to charge. Like, hey, you, small, you, you stole something so small in a time when it's impossible to keep track of things that we can't find it or prove it, or we're going to say you weren't working hard enough on the agreement that you gave to work on our land. Based on that, you're basically hired out as a cotton picker or to work in mine or to build a railroad. So it's like, hey, we're going to free you from slavery, and then we're going to say you committed a crime, not prove it, and then have you work for free for us. So where, where did the slavery ending part really really start? Uh -huh. So they actually found from 1870 until 1910 in Georgia, 88% of hired out convicts were black. In Alabama, 93% of hired out minors were black. Interesting. So it's like, you know, you have this system of slavery where we're exploiting, uh, you know, 
And in 2008, folks, just so you know, 58% of all prisoners were black or Hispanic. And they definitely don't represent 58% of the population. No, no, for sure. It says uh, one in six black men are being incarcerated as of 2001. Uh, and uh, it's interesting, man. But, I mean, that was just crazy to me. It's like literally, you know, there's a system of slavery that America was founded on where we really built our wealth from it. And as soon as that ended, we're like, what's the loophole to keep this going? Yeah, what's the loophole to keep this going? Okay, we need some, we hey, need so, some victims hey, here. Well, slavery, uh, slavery, they're oppressed and they so, can't really prove anything. Slavery so is illegal. Ahead. You, black man, you broke the law. You're going to work for free for us until we say you can't. It's not, it's not slavery because you broke the law and we proved it by saying you did. Right, exactly. In a court of law. <laughs> the system itself was just so flawed. And, I mean, that's really the fuel for the American economic system is it needs cheap labor. It needs immigrants. It needs prisoners. It needs somebody to exploit so the margins are there. And as you pointed out earlier, before the show, you're we kind of chit-chatting a little bit. They have guaranteed workforce. Guaranteed workforce. Yeah, that's cr- Why don't you talk about that a little? Because this was something that I, I didn't really know about until I read about this today. And it, it boggles the mind. Well, the prison companies, the for-profit prison companies, guarantee a capacity rate of over 9%, 90%, and some of them up to actually 100%, they guarantee a capacity rate. So the state then has an obligation, right, to fill the prisons and keep them full. Yeah, so conceptually, you know, you've got So your... doesn't it sound like the same system? Because it sounds like the same system to me. Well, you create a, a flaw in the system, right, because... In theory, well, I'm talking about the slavery system that you that yeah. the post-slavery system in this system seems to be run parallel. Well, I was just talking about how like cyclical the system is because in a way there's supposed to be safeguards to prevent this from happening. Like we go, oh, okay, well, you know, people are only gonna be in jail if they're committing the crimes. So you know, there's only gonna be prisoners if people are committing the crimes. Well, when you look at it like this, though, if the state's financially obligated, contractually obligated to keep its prisons full. Then it doesn't matter if people are making breaking crimes or not. You need to convict them. You need to keep that prison full. Yeah. You've got a financial incentive that could bankrupt your economy, your state, your local government, if you don't hold up your end of the bargain. Which so, begs the question: Why are you signing this contract in the first place? So then, so then, what happens, right? What happens is that it trickles all the way down to like the broken windows policies and things like this. What do you mean by that? Can you elaborate on on that? Well, the broken windows, you know, the, the thing that Eric Garner, you know, got arrested for where he was selling loose cigarettes. Oh, Lucy's, like, you know, Lucy's. Petty, petty little crimes, you know. Um, is that what they call it, broken windows? Yeah, because, it, you know, a broken window is a crime, but it's... Uh, you mean you broke a window with a rock or something? Somebody, right, yeah, exactly. That's kind of like the thing that they used to... But you know what I'm saying? So it trickles down to that lowest level where these, these people are being rounded up and fed into this, this system over and over and over again. Uh, in order to keep it full because there's a lot of times that you know uh, people do get caught up in the system and then they can't get a job and they're forced to commit more crimes you know later and yeah, after they're they're out and then they end up back in the system again and then you know their crimes escalate because you know they're they, they become less and less uh, acclimated to normal society because they're in and out of prisons and you know they become they become part of that system forever to you know perpetuate the uh, the agenda and make some more money for the states and also the, the prison systems apparently. I mean, I could imagine that these, uh, you know, there's $70 billion yearly spent on uh, corrections and uh, $200 billion on public safety as a whole. So we're talking about some significant coin. And it is systemic as, as all, all these problems we talk about always seems to be. Uh, I was listening to the Joe Rogan experience well, last you, week. We always go back and you've said it a, a lot. It's institutionalized. Of course. Right? It's institutionalized. The, 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 um, the criminal justice system from the standpoint of the police departments is institutionalized in their unification to stand up and shield officers who do bad things while on patrol. Uh, this system is institutionalized to, you know, create more people at the bottom and keep feeding it, you know, from the streets. Yes, exactly. And the point I was bringing up was this, I listened to the Joe Rogan experience every now and then. He's got some what great up, guests. Joe? And he had Michael A. Wood Jr. on last week, who's a retired Baltimore police officer who was recently speaking out about uh, police brutality. And 
listening to him talk about the situation, I got a real insight into, you know, how just all these different levels from the police officer down in the field to the prison industry guard to the lobbyist to the builder, they're all so complicit in the system in different ways because what, uh, what Michael Wood talked about was that as a police officer, you're put in a position where you're forced to try to treat everything autonomously. He used to say, I tried to be like RoboCop like an unthinking, right. unfeeling machine about everything. Because, you know, I don't want to treat the white guy any differently than the black guy. But if you take that perspective, then you become blind to the institutionalized racism that you're a part of. Because he pointed out that, oh, you know, like, it doesn't make sense for us to be like, hey, pull over that grandmother. Pull over that young, cute college girl. If you're in Baltimore in the inner city, it makes sense to pull over 16 to 24 year old African-American males based on the crimes that you're looking out for. Those are the ones committing the most of them. But I think the whole point of that is, is that you're not supposed to just be pulling over anybody. No, of course. For well, that reason. well, looking at it autonomously, that makes sense. You know, that makes sense. But then you realize he pointed out, you know, OK, well, if these are the people you're always looking at crimes for then you're always going to be the ones you're finding guilty of crimes. And because of that, you're always looking for them to commit crimes. And a lot of them are going to have had history committing crimes because uh -huh. you caught them before. Right. And now and that's that cyclical stuff that I yeah. was talking about. So now that 13 or 14 year old kid who, if they were in the suburbs, never gets caught with that dime bag or that beer. Now they get caught with it. Now they lose their driver's license. Now they can't go to their job. Now they want to start making money selling drugs. It just becomes such a, a trap to fall into when you're expected to do wrong and everyone's looking for you to do wrong, you end up forcing people into the system. And the psychology as a police officer that Mr. Wood talked about was you're trying to blind yourself to this because you only want to see it as like a case-by-case -case basis. I'm just out there doing my job. But then it becomes a numbers game. Yep. If you aren't giving the numbers to your, your district head, then he's not happy because then he can't go to his supervisor and say, look, we're making an impact on violent crime. They can't go to the mayor and say, look, we're impacting violent crime. The mayor can't go to the governor and say, look, I'm impacting violent crime. The governor can't go to the president and say, look, I'm impacting violent crime. You're not actually impacting anything, but you're giving people statistics that make it perceived that you are, which is the trap of everything. Because guess what? Statistics get funding. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, if you don't have those stats, you ain't getting funding. You ain't getting a grant to build your new jail. You ain't your performance is based on that increase or that drop in violent crime, and you know, and making it making an impact. Exactly, and it's about perception. Because how do you, how do you else do you gauge yourself? I mean, that's kind of a conundrum, right? You you have to do the whole goal is to do better at your job or do better what you what your your task is at hand, and then you have to continue to do this. But it's like what you said. I mean, this this statistic kind of kind of matches up with that really really well. So. As far as drugs are concerned, nonviolent crimes, right? Blacks can, uh, they are 12% of the users, 12% of the population use drugs. and But they uh, account for 32% of the people arrested for possession. Yeah. That's exactly what you're talking about. Who are we going to target? We're going to target that guy. Stop and frisk. Hey, of up to your pockets. Oh, I'm sorry. You have marijuana? You're going to prison. You're going to go sit in Rikers for three years. <laughs> There's just too much money to be made, and I mean, when you look at the back end, uh, the biggest private prison owner in, in America is called the Corrections Corporation of America. Fitting name, right? The Corrections Corporation of the America. Corrections Corporation of America. I, I thought that was just what we called America, but uh, they, they've seen its, its their profits increase. That's just the corporation. They've seen their profits increase by more than five hundred percent over the past 20 years. Well, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, that's right in line with uh, the increase of 500% increase over the last 40 years in the entire population. So, I mean, here's the thing. It's like not only are they increasing their their customer base, let's say, you know, we've got more prisons being built, we've got more people in prisons, but we need to figure out how we can boost those margins. So we've seen a lot of stuff going in state-run uh, prisons where it's run by the state, it's typically run with far less incidents, both in terms of like riots, uh, prisoner on prisoner violence. There's less in there's state prisons. 
far it's state run where it's run by the state as opposed to run by a private corporation. Oh, okay, I got Because you, with got the you. private corporation... State-funded. State-run. State-run. State yeah. Okay. So, I mean, the state's funding everything. They're just giving the money to the private corporation You're right. to okay. do it for they them. they run it. They, they physically run So, when they find when the state runs it, it has far less violent incidents and far less, like, rioting, large-scale stuff. And the cause, they think, is that at these private prisons, there's no prison guards union like there is for the state. It's all private. So what they're able to do is, to a degree in certain areas, is they can hire a person that's not of the quality, let's say, that's required elsewhere. So what happens when you get low-quality prison guards? They don't know how to de-escalate. They don't know how to handle situations. Because of that, there's a lot more incidents. When there's a lot more incidents, there's more write-ups. Well, what do you think determines whether or not somebody's kept in prison? It's not the prison guards. It's the judicial review board, usually a probationary board. Right. What does the probationary board base their decision on? Incidents. Prisoner conduct. Uh-huh. The, con- the conduct seems to be based a lot on the quality of the guards. Right. You know, if the guards treat you terrible and they're not intelligent, yep. there's going to be a lot of incidents uh-huh. and a lot of incidents to get ridden up. And that's going to reflect on your entire future. Oh, yeah. And they're making more money on both ends of it because they underpay the guard and then it keeps the prisoner there longer. And they can hold them hostage. So they're basically. making money on both sides. Of, I mean, they've even found that they've been skimping on provisions, including foods. One uh, psychiatrist who investigated a privately run prison, it was in Mississippi, they reported that the prisoners were so severely underfed that they looked almost em- emaciated. Yeah, and that prisoners dropped anywhere from 10 to 60 pounds over the course of two to three years during an incarceration. Oh my goodness. Because they're just, you know, they're feeding them gruel with no protein in it. What? Because that's a way to cut profits. You know, you can increase the profit margin Spend less on food, less on quality, less on quantity. That goes right in your pocket. And it's like we were talking about too. We were talking about a little bit earlier, like victimizing the victim, right? So you can victimize. You you can you can take advantage of these people because in the eyes of uh, normal, free society, uh, they're already the dregs of, of society, and and so the heck with them. And they they did something to be in there anyway. It's it's like the idea of. Uh, why did the guy run and then he got shot by the cops? You know what I'm saying? Well, if he didn't do anything wrong, he wouldn't have ran. Well, that doesn't have anything to do with it. We've seen that when people stop and throw their hands up, they also get shot. So, um, you know, being in in, in, in in prison and people saying, oh, well, he's a prisoner and, and that if he didn't do something wrong, he wouldn't be in there and then therefore he wouldn't be getting ruled. Well, that's some bullshit. Yeah, it's the psychological aspect of prison that messes with my head the most because you and me would both agree there are some people who do need to be in prison. Heck yeah. And I don't mean, I, I, mean, I, don't, I, don't yeah. mean I don't mean a few. There's tens of thousands of people sure. who are just absolutely nuts. They have no moral center. They have no ethics. Yeah. And there's they have no, no empathy. They have no remorse. They have no. They have, yeah. There's, there's, a, there's yeah, a lot of they, sociopaths, they, they, psychopaths, they should, morons out there. Be, and and they should be in prison. The question then becomes, though, on one side, should we be trying to make money? off of these failures of humanity. Is that really, you know, somebody like this, they're born, they end up being a sociopath or a terrible human. Well, I guess we might as well make a profit on them. Let's since, lock them in a cage. Since, since, since society can't benefit by them being a good person, let's just throw them in a hole and make money on torturing them for the next 50 years. Well, the other thing that you didn't even mention when you were talking about these uh, for-profit prisons and their 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 lack of adequate, um, you know, policing, uh, is the overcrowding at the same time. So, you know, you have Very true. overcrowding in all these prisons uh, because of this system that we're stuffing them full. And then we have people that you think for, for one second somebody's going to go away to prison for two, let's say even say two to three, right? Let's say they get two to three years of stint, you know, upstate. Well, they'll, they'll be in probationary court for years after. Well, let's, yeah, well, let's talk about this. And, and you don't think that they're going to come out and be a psychologically scarred person? I mean, you're locking somebody in a cage and you're doing all these things. And I mean, don't you think that our money would be well spent on rehabilitation and some other means, uh, uh, some other channels for some, for some or most of these people? Prison isn't about rehabilitation. No, it's not at all. It's about punishment. Prison isn't even about punishment. It's about profit. Well, profit and punishment go hand in hand in this case. You can you can only make profit if you're punishing somebody. Well, okay? yeah, because that's why they skimp on things and make it even worse for them. They found that the average cost of keeping a prisoner in, you know, like a federal or state penitentiary or whatever, high security, it's like over a hundred thousand dollars per person per year. In New York I think it was like hundred and sixty. It's forty grand a year to go to Harvard. <laughs> 
So I mean, like we're willing to invest multiples of of a Harvard education into keeping somebody in a rat hole around murderers, rapists, thieves, and you know, people of of lower ilk is is usually defined in upper security prisons. That's the way to rehabilitate them. It definitely seems like that money could be invested in a better way if your idea was how are we going to benefit society as a whole from the situation, not just a few people. There's too much money to be made is the problem. Right. So now the power and, and the money is consolidated in a small area instead of you know saying, hey, if we can help these people, let's return them to society with something to do. you know. And then the other thing is, man, is that they also become disenfranchised as well because then they can't vote. They can't even participate in the system if you're a felon. Um, which again, uh, you know, there's a lot of arguments about whether or not that they should be allowed to. And I say that everybody makes mistakes and we all still have to live there. Why, what, what, why should you lose your right to influence? Uh, oh, I, I agree entirely. You know, have people if, represent you. If you're a nonviolent drug offender, there, there's no reason to strip your right to vote. None whatsoever. Right. But, right. On, but on top of that, it's like, hey, I don't even vote and I have the right to vote. <laughs> 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 you know, they've taken away your right to have a, 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 a charade of a choice. Right. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Which they shouldn't. They shouldn't take away your right to have that fake choice. But uh, the fact that you're only given a fake choice in the first place is that much more disheartening. Like, like that's what we should be fighting for is the prisoner's right to have this fake choice. Right. Like, why don't we fight for them making that a real choice and then give the prisoners the right to join in on that? And you mentioned nonviolent drug, uh, nonviolent drug offenses, and that's been a big topic of discussion lately too. Because those are the guys that got their sentences communicated, that had very, very long, even life sentences for dealing crack cocaine because the, three strikes on California, yeah, the, the crack disparity right, laws yeah, in New York, crack disparity laws, and the, you know and, and they're called the Rockefeller drug yep. laws, right? Yeah, and so. Um, you know, 14 million white people and 2.6 million black people reported using illicit drugs. But that's five times more whites are using drugs than blacks. But blacks are sent to prison at 10 times the rate. What do I, I always love to quote Hunter S. Thompson on? In America, the only crime is to get caught. In the land of the criminal, that's the only true crime. It, I, that's just the way it works. It doesn't matter what you're doing. And it matters what you're caught doing. Right. You take steroids and you hit a home run, you're the greatest player in the world. You, you take caught. steroids and you get caught, you're a dirty piece of shit who dishonored the game. But until we catch you, even if we know it's just suspicion, we can't prove it, you're a hero. Right, hero. That's the way we approach everything. You look like Superman, but so deal. You know, that's the big problem, like I said, with uh, with Michael Wood Jr. You know, they're looking for blacks to commit the crimes. Yeah, exactly. Because, that's what I was touching and, on. And guess what? They finding they are, and what are they catching so, them with? They're catching them with with sm- mostly small amounts of drugs, right? Cocaine, crack, cocaine, marijuana, uh, marijuana, uh, and they are slapping huge sentences on them for that. They're just do- hey, I'm just doing my job. I'm just doing my job, I'm keeping people off the streets, making it safer. Hey, well, that's make sure the- those drugs don't fall in the hands of children. Here's the here's the thing. As a cop, the war on drugs is a failure because no matter what you do, just like prohibition in the twenties, which we totally celebrate and it's like our part of our history and it's funny. It's like ooh, the swinging twenties. I, I don't know if it's funny, but yeah, blah, blah, it, it, you know, I guess but, in historical hindsight, it doesn't that leave as bad a taste in our mouth as it did in the forties. It doesn't. We celebrate every aspect of bootlegging. We watch NASCAR. We watch hipster we, bars or bootleg style. Yeah, the Valentine's Day massacre. There's a bar in San Diego called Bootlegger. <laughs> Need I say more? Exactly. So we celebrate this stuff, right? Yeah. We celebrate the mafioso uh, side of it as well. Um, Boardwalk Empire on HBO. All those things, right? Mm-hmm. So this is how this is how we look back in, in, at this at this gener- at this era. But right now, what's going on with drugs in America is we hate. All the cartels from Mexico, we want to incarcerate all the people who have anything to do with these drugs. And this is something that we celebrated just 100 years ago. But it's just, it's just a lie. And so what I'm getting at is that it's a lie and it's bullshit because if anybody wants to go get drugs, like if you and I wanted to go shoot heroin this afternoon, we could go, we could go find heroin and shoot it. And we don't. And it being illegal has nothing to do with whether or not I want to go do that. What it does is, is I don't want to fuck myself up because I know heroin is bad. But what I'm saying is if people want to do drugs, they're going to do drugs. And so if we can freaking bring the free and, and, and change the, our viewpoints on drugs and the way that we, that we police them, we can police things without actually having a war on them and actually keep it into some kind of box 
then we don't have now we're not filling up these prisons with this, with these with these offenses. And you'll lim- you'll eliminate some of the violent crime as well. You can because the, there's some violent offenders that are that are packed in these prisons that it got violent because of the underground drug market. Of course, and uh, I mean you can get drugs inside of prison. That shows you there's people in prison. Oh yeah, hey, I mean they talk about that stuff. You, 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 sex, you, and you, drugs, you can be in prison. Thing. You can be in prison for drugs, and yet you can easily find drugs in prison. Right. So that, the irony is overwhelming. But I mean the war on drugs itself is just a lie because when you think about it. America's the largest drug dealer in the world when it comes to prescription drugs. Right. Prescription drugs are just professionally made drugs. Oxycontin, professionally made heroin. Xanax, heroin, whatever it is, it's just professionally made, which means it's even better quality. That's not a good thing necessarily. It could be because we know it doesn't have like, you know, toxins and it's other better if you're taking it, the better quality. Yeah, that's what Woo! I'm saying. Like, if there's no impurities, but it doesn't make it like it's good to take it because it's made professionally. Right. It's not good for you because they advertise it on television. So if America's the largest legal drug dealer, and if thanks to the war in Afghanistan, we're actually the largest supporter of heroin in the world. Heroin production's gone up tenfold in Afghanistan since our presence there, because that's where they make most of their money from. So in order to stabilize the region and get support from the warlords there, we've had to support the increase in poppy growth. Damn. Because of that, heroin has flooded Russia, Asia, and Europe. Just flooded it over the last 10 years. So in America, we have a war on drugs on certain illegal drugs, but we're also the biggest supporter possible worldwide of legal drugs, and we're also the biggest supporter worldwide of heroin thanks to our military stance. So we don't really have a war on drugs in any way, shape, or form. It's just basically this like political jargon we've been using for so long. And like you said, how we do you, we how, do have a war on drugs, but here's the war on drugs. The war on drugs is at the end user level. What's the enemy in the war on All drugs? All we do is the enemy? What do you mean? I, I don't know. Well, most wars we fund, when you think about what a war is, there's two sides. So, you know, let's say, or not even two sides, there could be multiple sides, but there's a common enemy. So, you know, World War II, it was the Allies and the Imperial forces, Japan, well, they would Germany, argue that the Italy, enemy, whatever. The enemy is, is the threat, is whatever the threat that that brings. Drug use is a human behavior. So when you say war on drugs, you're basically saying war on humanity. Terrorism. Okay. Terrorism is a human behavior. Truly. So when you say war on terror, you're saying a war on human behavior. Well, that is, but there, now, you I'm not have saying, to have a war on that human behavior. I don't know if you do, though. I don't think so. I think you have to have a situational approach to dealing with scenarios. But when you say we should have a war on terrorism, well, now we're going to start looking for type of behaviors that we deem to be terroristic. Well, when you start going down that slippery slope, what can be classified as terrorism? Having views that are unpopular to the state slowly start to slide into that grasp where, okay, well, he's not saying let's overthrow him or let's blow up a building, but his phrase is getting unpopular speech. Is that being a terrorist? In China it is. In Egypt it is. No, you're very, that's very You know, it's a very, very slippery slope over what becomes terrorism. You can't have a real war on an idea or behavior. What I'm saying is from a political context, the war on drugs is a war just like my man Tupac. Yeah, but it's war it, on poverty, right? I mean, that's the whole same idea. Same shit, they, though. They, they, it, they have the same type of... And it's the same system that ties back to that post-slavery system that you were talking about. If we can find something to, 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 to always catch this certain segment of society doing, we can imprison them in a way that is profitable to us in the long run. Poverty is a human condition. Well, I know. I'm not, I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying, I'm, like, all these things we have wars against... It's an enemy we're never going to be able to defeat because it's always going to exist. Poverty is always going well, to exist. Terrorism is always like, going to exist. Drugs are always going to exist. Whatever that fight is, whatever that fight is, in some sort of decriminalization, in, in, in all the instances where you see this criminalization, I don't know have the stats, but I do know it's true, like in Portugal, that they have seen a significant drop in crime across the board because of the decriminalization of, of, of controlled substances, as the United States terms them, deems them. Um, and so what I'm getting at is, is that when you, when you stop that, then now you're, now you're and, and, and treat it as the condition that it is, right? We, that we have, it's a mental problem. That's what you said. It's a, it's a, it's a human condition. Yep. And people who have, who have, um, addiction problems, who are addictive, who have addictive personalities and get addicted to these drugs like methamphetamines and, 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 and other things that are, that are very, very, very addictive. We should be treating them as being sick and the way that they that they that we treat depression not the same way that we treat a a, a guy that, that that murders somebody with an axe in the living room 
Yeah, that'll be better for the person. It'll be better for the state. It'll be better for the public. It won't be better for the private corporations that make massive profits off of it. Right, or the political, or the police departments that need to continue to escalate and get bigger and bigger and that's, bigger. That's a job. Exploded, that's a jobs program. Exploded thing. It's a jobs right. program. Exactly. My, my main point I was talking about with you know it's like war on terrorism, war on poverty, war on drugs. We need to change the political jargon because in a war anything's justified. There's a reason we've got so many prisoners. There's a reason we treat drug addicts like the dregs of society. There's a reason we do all these things because we're at war. And when you're at war, anything goes. That's, the, that's just the fact. Until we can really rephrase our approach and our ideology behind what we're trying to accomplish, we're going to be at war. And when we're at war, nothing ever changes. Yeah, nobody's well, nobody's ever willing to take a step back because then they say, guess what? It, we sacrificed all that for naught. I don't want my son's drug overdose to have been for naught. I don't want my buddy's arm blown off in Iraq to be for naught. If we, don't, if, if we change course then whatever sacrifices have been made have been for naught. So let's keep marching towards that black hole in the distance and see what happens. Well, and also by labeling it a war, and it, it, it gives you a, 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 an image of the enemy. That's the enemy. The enemy is the drug And user. we're righteous. And we're righteous, whatever right. we're doing. We're, right. on, we're on the side of good. That's the side of it's evil. It's kind of evil. we got to defeat it. It's a war. we got to defeat it. There's a good guy and a bad guy. Well, right. well, don't think about it. Well, what always kills me is, what always kills me is you always see, you always see the, the addict in the street um, getting pick, getting getting picked up, getting scooped up. The one in the alley, or, or some low level drug dealer on the corner, and it's just like, yeah. I, every time I see this or hear about it, I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? This is this is what we do. We just continue to get the the, the obvious, the easy, uh, you know, uh, targets. Um, a lot of these people, they know them by name. You watch cops, they're like, hey, Sandy, like, oh, you're still out here hooking, like, yeah. I mean, you will get punished if your arrest rates aren't meeting your quotas. If you're in a big city and you know you're on your beat, this is your area and you don't have arrests, you're going to feel heat coming so down here's on you. The, here's you're the going to feel heat on different layers. Why aren't you getting the arrest that historically we've got in this area? Either you're not doing your job or something's going on. And you could just be, well people aren't just breaking the law. Isn't that a good thing? And they'll be like, well guess what? If our arrests are down but our crime stays the same, then it looks like we're not doing our job. So guess what? Go around the street, kick the tires. You know where to usually get some easy arrests are. Keep perpetuating Well, that's things. exactly my, what I was gonna say is, is, isn't it funny how they can't, you, you continue to, to, to make these arrests and, and over and over and turn it and turn it and turn it, but you're doing nothing to reduce crime. No, you're doing nothing. It's about the perception of reducing crime, which is why we said it's a numbers it's game. It's the false perception of safety. If you can create the environment to people that they feel safe by through some false pretense of having these cops around harassing uh, uh, homeless people to get them off of the, uh, the the benches at the train stops and um, or rounding them up in the rounding them up in the in the canyon for Christ's sake with yeah. their with their tent camps, you know. Uh, I mean, gosh dang man, all I'm trying to do is have some have some food and. It's where, hey, it's where they have the, it's where they have the capabilities. We're gonna go rouse them up and the perceptive abilities. Like in San Diego, San Diego's got this reputation. They love to have their slogan, and I love San Diego, one of my favorite cities in the entire world, if not my favorite city. But it's America's finest city. So it's like they really have taken an active effort to push the homeless into just a few certain streets in downtown and nowhere else, like in front of the old library, in front of that strip on like F Street where there's the, the VA building and the food shelter. They're really like pushed into these enclave areas. And if they're outside of there, I almost always, if I ever see a cop messing with somebody, it's messing with like some homeless person in a park or on like yeah, Fifth really, Avenue. Really bag and stuff. Yeah, because they're in some area where there's a lot of people and you know you shouldn't be there because clearly you must have drugs or this because you're homeless. Go to LA, man. LA, there's like, oh, yeah. I mean, at, you can you can find Skid Row on Google Maps. Yeah. Uh, like literally, we're talking like hundred thousands of people in like a block or two in dozens of areas of the city. Hundreds of people grouped together on block after, it's like a trash camp city in certain areas. Freeway underpasses, streets, alleyways. And when you see the amount of people there, I was driving back from LA from a, a party one night, and I was I couldn't believe, I literally thought I was at like a Coachella camp out. That's how many <laughs> tents I saw. It was unbelievable. Nobody seen in sight, but nothing but tents and sleeping bags for like four blocks. Yeah, yeah. And so what we're getting at is to tie us into the crime and the prison population is, is that these are the people that are often targeted when the numbers are low. Hey, you need some arrest? 
Make a left on J Street. Start start knocking on the tents. And hey, we know go. they have drugs. I, I smell something. I smell smell drugs. I'm gonna have to go yeah, through their stuff. Yeah. yeah. You got some weed in there? Yeah, you know your breath smells stir. Can you can you walk stuff out of the tent? Yeah, I'm pretty hammered. Public intoxication. Public, this is my house. <laughs> so I mean, well, prisons are something that we definitely should have and do need. It well, needs, it's like it, Obama said. Obama even said to, about the guys that he talked to six inmates. He said that they made they made mistakes when they were younger. A lot of people make mistakes when they're younger, and some end up there, and some get by. And that's the whole point that we're getting at is that just because you you make a mistake, and, and like Hunter said, Mr. Thompson, you know, it, it's not a crime until you get caught. Yeah. And how many of you think about honestly? How many of you people have done something in the past where if you would have gotten caught doing it, now all of a sudden you're you're 25 to life? Nah, not I, I, I don't. Much, I, but three to five. I don't. I don't want to think about. No, I'm just saying. I don't want to think mean, about it's it. An honest, it's an honest. No, 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 no. It's an honest. People person. have to honestly look at themselves and self-analyze and say. Maybe I, maybe those there's the same type of person as me in a, a federal prison, and he should be treated as as such. He should he should have the same opportunities. Yeah, okay, maybe he should be limited and curtailed in some ways, or maybe he shouldn't even be in there. Maybe maybe it is a drug offense. Maybe it does need to be something that you know can be rehabilitated in a way and and be taught to 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 do things in another manner. I mean, hell, if he's a good drug dealer, he's probably a good businessman. Possibly. <laughs> That's why he's strapped. Hey, I'm just saying, right? You wouldn't be doing it if he wasn't turning a profit. I don't know. Ugh. He wouldn't have gotten caught if he wasn't wasn't a little under the, the radar either, right? Well, I'm not saying but, he has to run a shady business. I'm just saying that the wares that he peddles has to be legal. I'm just saying it's like Layer Cake. The best drug dealer, you don't even know his name. You ain't heard of him. He's off the radar. That's right. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, final thoughts, Matt. Uh, moving forward, uh, I'm really interested to see... Obama's special on Vice on HBO. It's going to be like a 45-minute well, special. Was getting at too, Maybe an hour and a half special, I think it's going to be, they said. It's, what's crazy is that, you know, this is bipartisan movement now. I mean, I was Boehner just said that they that they should look at criminal justice reform oh, as well. Bi- bipartisan campaign contributions from the prison industry complex, too. <laughs> $45 million was the stat I read from the three largest for-profit prison corporations. They spent $45 million in the last 10, 15 years on campaign donations and lobbyists wow. to keep politicians on both sides of the aisle greased. Yeah, but it seems like it's gaining a lot of momentum now that we really do need to address this problem. Momentum, Matt. That's, I, don't, I hate to be cynical here. I, I, I always like to say I'm a realist. Well, look. I'm, yeah. a, I'm a realist, but people who are, are cynical think I'm an optimist. Well, at least New York City is, is, is dropping bail for nonviolent crimes, low-level misdemeanors, nonviolent crimes. And so yeah, they're dropping bail. They're not like until the, so that means it's going to have people getting out of those things a little bit faster at the at the lowest level. So I mean, if you start at the very, very, very grassroots level of this thing, and you start to chip away and start to reform there, which is already starting to happen, and the way that we, if we can be more sympathetic to drug uh, offenders, um, we'll, keep, we'll 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 start to slow that process too. So it has to start at the court level and at the street level. And those type of, uh, of, of sympathies and, and viewpoints need to change. And then once those change, the, the higher-ups, I mean, if you have nothing to fill the funnel with, there's, there, you can't fill the funnel. You can't fill the bottle. It's true. I, I just see the problem with an abusive system as that it thinks that it can counteract its exploitive nature with small credences of you know, affection or loyalty. So, you know, hey, we'll still arrest you for the same completely bogus bullshit that shouldn't be a crime in the first place, but we'll lower your bail so that it's a little easier for you to deal with the situation. It's like, hey, guess what? Every day I'm going to slap the shit out of you, but I'm going to give you a bag of ice afterwards. So be happy I'm giving you the bag of ice because I could not be giving you the bag of ice. Why the hell are you slapping me in the first place? Well, that's what I said about the sympathies and like uh, being more sympathetic to drug offenses. And are you going like to forget being slapped? Are you going to forget being slapped because I give you the ice? Exactly. You're, no, you're, no, you're going to resent me forever for it. But that's what I was saying about moving forward and changes is that like it has to start there. It has to be the way that we view these type of crimes and whether or not we actually believe that they are uh, they justify such heavy uh, sentences on the other side. My final thoughts would just be: I fear that our response is the classic American glacial response, where things are moving so slowly in real time that we can't perceive that when we have to make a change, it's too late. By the long-term effects are too drastic. The fucking iceberg will have melted by the time we take action on it. 
So in the meantime, yeah, we're doing things. Obama's talking, he's visiting the penitentiary, we're lowering the bail rates. Unless we're doing anything to actually impact this prison rate where it's two million and growing, if we can't say, hey, we have to get this prison inmates down to a million in the next two years, set, set a hard line statistic, something we can strive for to achieve, then yeah, we're just going to be like easing off pressure in little areas, but everybody still needs their kickbacks. Every business still needs their profits. Everybody still needs their cut. Every union still needs their jobs. You can't really just destroy that infrastructure in a moment, which is the problem. The infrastructure says, okay, we'll change, but over time, over time, the infrastructure strengthens itself. Well, it's hard to constrict anything. Especially in an infinite growth paradigm. Right. Which we, which we live in. I mean, if a private corporation is taking over prisons, their concept should be, well, we need to keep growing profits. There's only two. we need to cut jobs. We can't cut jobs, and now we're going to have these criminals because these criminals are getting off. Now we're going to cut jobs. Oh, my God. No way. This is why it's crazy to have prisons be run by private business because, like we said, infinite growth paradigm. Well, if a private company is running prisons, they're going to say, we need to increase profits. We're business. There's only two ways to increase profits, more prisoners or higher margins on prisoners, which means their life is worth. Why not both? And right now they're sucking in both of those teats. So let's do both. Let's suck those teats dry, and then when the cow comes home, let's chop her head off and farm her out to Mayberry. Well, I'm more, <laughs> well, I'm more optimistic. I think that the small tweaks... Um, you know, our start, uh, you know, you have to, you have to get yourself in there somewhere and you have to start somewhere and maybe some small tweaks and some attention on this, uh, will get things moving in the right direction in some way, shape or form, no matter how slowly it might be, you know, but at the same time, you know, it, it, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. You can't, I, you can't stop, you can't stop the inertia of, of, of big business and the apparatus is already well entrenched. I admire your optimism and even though I might be a bit cynical, I'll call it realist, I think that's something we should strive for. Unfortunately, I do believe we're in the Project Mayhem stage of the game, which is self-improvement at this stage is masturbation. Now, self-destruction, that might be the answer. <laughs> so uh, I'll, I'll leave it on that note. Keep the, opti like keep the optimism, but, but don't fail to keep the realism as well, ladies and gentlemen. Let's strive for better, but let's look truth in the mirror and be able to, to stare at it with cold, truthful eyes and know what it is so we can actually overcome it. Boom. I'm not even going to say anything after that. Thanks again for the time, Mr. Walter. We'll be back again hopefully next week, ladies and gentlemen. Much love. Sounds good. Late. Peace.